Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Food 360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeartRadio. I was a American chef opening a restaurant in New York City, which was highly unusual. Very new, right? I was at the new animal in the zoo. You know, let's go see that new animal. Is he striped? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Some of you may know me as a chef and a New York restaurateur. Today's episode, we're going to talk about restaurants. Some people think the restaurant business is difficult. Well, it is. But for people that are in it, it's really a labor of love. And there's nobody who's done this better than today's guest who you heard at the start of the show, Jonathan Waxman. But his story doesn't start in the kitchen. Instead, when he grew up in Berkeley, California, he found himself doing odd jobs like selling Ferraris and playing in a band. But his love of food eventually grew when he moved to France to study at La Verenne School. It was there where he began to cultivate his style of California cuisine fused with French cooking influences. He then helped open Michael's restaurant in Santa Monica in 1979. And years later, when he came to New York, he opened Jams, a very hot restaurant, which made him one of the first celebrity chefs. In 2016, he was named James Beard Award winner for the best chef in New York City. And currently, he owns a variety of restaurants, and he's always involved in a bunch of projects. Welcome, Mr. Waxman. Mark, pleasure to see you. You came here from California. When you showed up in New York and you planted a restaurant in New York, which became, I think everybody knows, Jams was completely like everybody knew it. It was very famous. It was a huge success. But you planted yourself in the middle of a city where all the restaurants that were around you were like these heavy French restaurants. I mean, you brought a totally different cuisine. And were you worried like, oh, wait, I'm bringing something that people don't know, people don't understand. Did you have to educate them? What was it like? Well, I think that clueless is a good word for my behavior at that point. <laughs> I love you know, it. Um, Being young you is know, really good because yeah, you're yeah, dumb. <laughs> I was dumb. And I didn't really have a game plan per se. I just thought, and this is Larry Forgione's fault. Larry Forgione said, you know, the Frank Sinatra song, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. doesn't mean anything at all. But Larry just said, look, if you can make it in New York, you've done well. So 
number one, I was very lucky because I chose a location, unbeknownst to me, that was kind of, at that point in the early 80s, a sweet spot. It was a good location. Secondarily, even though I thought my rent was high then, which is $9,000 a month, which was very high for the rest of New York at that point. And third, that I got lucky. People started coming to the restaurant that used it as a local. But in those days, remember the competition mark was so low. It was kind of like low-hanging fruit. You know, it wasn't that hard to pick. In those days, there was no restaurants in Soho. There was really no restaurants in the Upper West Side. There were no restaurants in Tribeca. There was no restaurants in the Lower East Side. There were no restaurants anywhere except for Upper East Side, Midtown, and a smattering of other areas. So when I opened up, I didn't have that much competition. That's I awesome. Really didn't. Then secondarily, I was a American chef opening a restaurant in New York City, which was highly unusual. Very new, right? That was a new thing. So I was, I was like the new animal in the zoo. You know, let's go see that new animal. <laughs> Is he striped? <laughs> exactly. And then I served food that was seasonal, and people flipped out. But that's all I knew how to do. I didn't realize that was such a revolutionary right. idea to serve food that was in season. And then well, the last thing I did was that I had a good-looking restaurant. I hired a designer who knew what she was doing. I got galleries in New York City that loaned me art. The greatest achievement of jams at that point was that I had gone to Andre Soltner when I first got to New York in 83, and I asked him for some help. And he said, Jonathan, come down and have coffee with me. And Andre Soltner, if people don't know, had a restaurant called Lutes. And he was the restaurant in New York City. And he never left the restaurant, did he? He was yeah. there every night. Never left. And he opened up his Rolodex, he opened up his heart, he opened up everything, purveyors, friends, and it really gave me a little bit of a leg up. And other people did the same thing. So when I opened up, I was operating for about a year, and one day my maitre d' calls me up and said, Jonathan, Andre Soltner's at the front door with his wife. I said, what? He never leaves his restaurant. You got the wrong guy. It's Andre Sermat or something. And it was Andre Soltner. He came up, and we found a table for him, thank God, and he sat down. To me, that was the greatest achievement of my career. Oh, because here's this person that I revered more than anything, that I respected, who had helped me tremendously, and I knew had never left his restaurant for anything. And that was kind of like my little James Beard Award. You know, I got the Andre Solder Award that night because he showed up at my restaurant. And in those days, things were a little more intimate. I think what happened was the explosion of restaurants after I opened up was huge. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to open a restaurant in New York. At that point, you know, the competition became intense. And all of a sudden, people started looking for other areas to open restaurants because they were looking for places that you know were cheaper or had no restaurants and they didn't want the competition. You know, So it exploded. So I don't know how many restaurants were in New York in the early 80s, but I know there's more than 25,000 in New York City now. There's a lot now. And that's a lot of restaurants. Now, that includes Starbucks, things like that. But you think about 25,000 restaurants. Even if half of them were real restaurants you sat down in, that's a boatload of restaurants. Something else you just mentioned there. So when Aldri Saltner came into your restaurant, and of course you were totally honored that he was there, did you give him a check? You know what? I don't remember. Well, this is another part because I know somebody told me the first time I opened a restaurant, if your friends come in the restaurant, give them a check. Because if you don't, you're not going to make it. And when you're a young cook or a young person opening up your first restaurant, if all your friends start coming in and eating for free, at the end of the day, you're like, wait, there's, there's no more money in the bank. Well, because you just gave everything away. So I think it's really important when people open restaurants to think it's not just going to be a playground for them to hang out in. Yeah, I think that's what we call the gray area of how to survive. You know, I think that the bottom line is that how do you create a viable economic model from passion? 
And it's a little bit like an artist creating a painting. Now, you never know if you're going to sell it or not, but you have to have the passion to do it, and you have to have the creativity and everything else. But then you have to get lucky. You have to get an agent or a gallery that is going to show your art. And restaurants are a little bit the same way. The old days, there was an adage. We used to say, if you found a location, you couldn't find investors. Or you found <laughs> investors and you couldn't find a location. Somehow, the gods of restaurants didn't allow the two of those things to align. Those are kind of tests along the way to keep you focused on the prize. The prize really is to open a restaurant that comes with integrity and comes from your heart. But along the way, it also has to be viable. Absolutely. And what you're alluding to is that if you're overly generous or you're, let's say, a little sloppy in your bookkeeping, um, you don't stay in business. It's not going to last long. Not going to last. What does it take for you when you open a restaurant? What are your thought processes? Well, we could do this historically because I think it's kind of interesting. So when... Michael opened a restaurant 40 years ago in Santa Monica. It is an entirely different process than it is today. You'd have an architect come in and give you plans, and you'd design it with them. You'd hire a contractor. they come and build it, and there wasn't a lot of bureaucracy. Right. they come and look at your plans, they stamp them, and boom, you go. Now, in New York, you have Landmarks Committee. You've got the Health Department. You've got Department of Buildings. In the Department of Buildings, you've got all the different electric department, the plumbing department, mm -hmm. the elevator department. And what everybody has to understand is that it's a good thing to have scrutiny. It's a good thing to have checks and balances. But on the other side of it, from the restaurant tourist point of view, it's becoming more and more difficult because the people that sign off on your job, so to speak, are very scared of culpability. And I understand that. I get that. But what it's creating is bureaucracy that's so convoluted that the cost of building a restaurant has gone up from 40 years ago to now uh, astronomically. And I think then you also have to consider in the old days, you open a restaurant and your costs weren't as high. So you could just, you know, wait to build the business. A, a restaurant has to have a soul. And when you open a restaurant, it doesn't have one right away. The employees make the restaurant. But now once you just described all these costs you have to opening a restaurant, if you're not busy from day one, you're going to last six months. Yeah. I think the problem with most, what I would call virgin restaurateurs, people that have never done it before. There's no place to learn how to do it. There's no like school of thought. I mean, you could go to school to become an architect, you go to school to become a designer, you go to school to become a chef, but you need to have all those hats. You need to wear a designer hat, an architect's hat, an engineer's hat, a chef's hat. You also have to understand things from a business point of view. And that's where the biggest problem becomes. You know, most people that open a restaurant have zero clue about how to write a business plan. They go into it and they say, well, I'll grab a building on West Broadway and it's 1,200 square feet and, and then I'm going to do great because I have a passion. Well, passion in the old days was half the story. Now it's about 5% of the story. Yeah, that is the sad part because I always say, people ask me sometimes, you know, well, what does it take to open a restaurant? Just take a French bistro, for example. I want to open a French bistro. Okay, great. So now you got to go find the property, right? Okay, I found the great property, great price. I think I'm going to be able to open my French bistro. You got to put the brakes on. Okay, what does the neighborhood need? Because you're also a convenience for the neighborhood. If there's already five bistros within a five block radius, well, don't go open the sixth bistro because you're going to have much more competition. But if you find the great place and the great spot, you go, oh, wait, there's no Italian restaurants in this five block radius. Why would I open a bistro? There's five of them. Let me open an Italian restaurant. So I think that a lot of the times people don't understand, you know, a restaurant has to have a need to be there to start with, right? Yeah, I think the old days that the adage location, location, location was the marching paradigm. And there's criteria for that. And you learn that over the years. 
uh, with mistakes, of course, you know, that um, corners are better than middle of the block. Western facing is better than south facing. Look at your competition. See if there's anybody walking around. If there's no one walking around, well, then you're going to have to be a destination restaurant. So there's a lot of criteria in terms of location, location, location. But I still think that paradigm of looking for a place that has a sense of place should become a gathering spot where people want to come and dine. So that's the first thing you look for. The second thing you look for is viability in terms of economics. Well, I I look at that too. and, And people don't realize that if you have a restaurant that has 75 seats... You have to have X amount of cooks. You have to have X amount of managers. You have to have X amount of prep cooks and dishwashers and so on and so forth. But if I had that same footprint, but I could put 100 seats, I might only have to hire one more cook. Yeah, I think that now that I've made enough mistakes in my life and I've worked for enough people, (laughs) that in certain places like New York or Los Angeles or London or Paris, if you do under a certain amount of sales, you're not going to make it. You're just going to break even. Now, a lot of restaurants are happy to break even and pay themselves a salary. That's what I call a mom and pop shop. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that exists all over the world. I think the cornerstone of our business are the people that toil every day and they won't make any profit, but they'll pay enough money. So the mom and pop each take a salary. Maybe the kids make a salary. And you know, I've got someone who works for me now. He's from Mexico, from Puebla. And his family opened a restaurant out in Queens. And it does well enough so the family all gets money but it doesn't make any money on top of that. Right. So there's that style of restaurant. And then there's a restaurant that you go into it and you get investors, and let's say it's 2,000 square feet. And you go, well, 2,000 square feet, I can take 50% of that 1,000 square feet. That's how many people I can cram in there. One person per 20 square feet, then you know you can have a 50-seat restaurant. There you go. That's it. That's the math. So the, the math becomes sort of simple, but then you go, like, if I have a 50-seat restaurant, how much money am I going to do a year? And then you go, well, okay, I'm going to have a $50 check average. So that's great. So if you have one seating, you'll do $2,500 a day. And you multiply that times 365 days. Of course, you have to throw away some days because it snows or it's too hot to go out to eat, whatever. So call it 300 days a year. So that means you're going to be doing $750,000 in business. And we both know you can't make any money on that. You can't do that. But a mom and pop shop could make money in the right right location if the rent wasn't high enough. So here's all the criteria people need to understand. The ratio of rent that you pay to the volume of sales has to be a certain percentage. No one gets this, but everybody says, well, I I can afford to pay this rent because they're just doing hocus pocus with numbers. The reality (laughs) of life is that if the rent is above 5% of your gross sales, you're dead. Unless you're a genius like John George Bungericker, then you know how to do it. And a lot of people gladly pay 5% because they want that location. Their hearts get involved with the situation, and they and they get passionate about a space, right. and they go, well, I'll just pay 15% rent because I love the space. Well, then, okay, so then you pay 15% rent, <laughs> and then your cost of goods is 30%. So right now you're 45% you've already spent, and your payroll is another 35%. You're at 80%, and your G&A costs 20%. You're not making any money. You're losing money. So I think that from the public's point of view, they have to realize how small our margins really are. Our margins are so tiny that if you get the formula incorrect, you're screwed. And it's one of those things that if you have five companies and one of them's not doing well, and you're taking all the money from the other four to subsidize the fifth one that's not doing well, well, just close it. 
But the problem with chefs, they get all this emotion behind it. And they're like, no, but that's my little baby and I want to keep it. And it's going to make it. It's going to make it. Next year, it'll do better. Next year, it'll do better. But it's actually not true because yeah. you got to bite the bullet and just close it down if it's not doing what it needs to do. It's a little bit like forming the roster for the Yankees, that you spend enough money, get the right players, you think you're going to win the pennant. And that's how restaurants work. Initially, you get the right location, you get a great designer, you have a great idea what you want to do, and then you build it, you hopefully don't spend more than you should have, you hire a great chef, a great manager, and get all the roster together, and you open up the door. And therein lies the scary, it's a little bit like Lord of the Rings, when you go into that cave and you don't know what's inside there. Because there could be a monster that's going to swallow you up, or there could be a bunch of dwarves throwing a party. And I remember talking to Danny Meyer about this many times. Every time you think you got it right and you open up, and a year and a half later, you're still struggling. And why are you struggling? Because the formula is amorphous. It is this organic creature that you really can't control. So is there an element of luck? I think so. A lot of people say you make your own luck. Well, I think there is a sensibility about making your own luck per se, but there's also talent. And talent is really the brand. Talent and passion are the brand. And how do you codify the passion and brand and how do you bottle the magic? And bottling the magic is the hardest thing to do. You can get all the economics right, you get everything else right, right but then you could have a restaurant that people walk in, they go, well, this is nice. Unfortunately, a lot of restaurants, you can walk into them and you just smell bean counters. You're like, oh, look, they did this because that's trending now. Oh, they did this amount of seats because this is it. They put it in this location. Oh, they use that designer. But then you sit down and have dinner and it's not that it's not good, it's fine, but it doesn't have a soul and it doesn't have, have a heartbeat. It just has a feeling like you're going through a factory and it's like, oh, this is another one of those restaurants. People's tastes change dramatically. So I always say the restaurants are like nuclear particles. After five years, they start losing their, their mojo and you have to re-energize them after five years or 10 years, whatever it is. I think that's a part of it. And also you can't stand still. You can't serve the same menu every day. It just doesn't work. More on Food 360 right after this quick break. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. 
Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome back to Food360. So one thing we haven't talked about yet is layout. I've done it right. when I had a restaurant with 300 seats. It's like, what is the pattern of flow of busboys and runners <laughs> and customers? I've literally done that where I take a different color pencil and I try to mark up where I'm like, okay, at this corner, if every plate that goes to the kitchen and out of the kitchen and each customer going to the bathroom have to squeeze by this narrow area, we're going to have like a mash pile up every night if we're actually busy enough. The funny thing about that, when I was doing a Barbudo, um, I literally laid it out by hand and I chalked it in the floor and I've got furniture from a warehouse someplace and I set things up. But I want that mush pit. I want everything to come together <laughs> because it creates energy. So if you walk into Barbudo, the host is right at the front door, literally at the front door. The bar is three feet away and the corridor to get to the bathroom or get to the kitchen is the same thing to get to your table. So invariably, especially in wintertime, when there's everybody's got coats and all this stuff. It, it looks like chaos, but I love that. You love Because I love that. It's like going to a party where everybody's sitting down and having a drink and it's quiet. You want to get the hell out of well, there. Well, you want, you, you know, you want or do certain... you want to go to a party where people bouncing off the walls? And not a lot of people think that way. They want to manage the flow or they manage the situation. They want to almost a military-like order things. I want things on the edge of chaos. But that goes back to different types of concepts because if you're a place like you had Barbudo and I had Landmark or if you go to La Bernadette, they're walking around with big silver trays. The last thing you want to do is bump into that guy. It just took him a half hour to plate those plates. And if they go back to the kitchen and have knocked it on the floor, it's going to be a problem. Well, I think that's the beauty of our business because you could have the mom-pop shops. You could have the bird cakes. You could have massive restaurants like Landmark or you could have sports bars. Bars. The beauty of our business is nothing is wrong and nothing's right. It's just what you want to do. You know, when I talk to people that are not in the restaurant industry, I always like to say to them, you know how difficult it is just to get that French onion soup in front of you on the table? Somebody has to order it. Then somebody's got to drive a truck and get it delivered. It's got to be checked into your restaurant. Then it's got to be prepped. And then a cook's got to put it on the line and it's going to be ready to cook this. And in the meantime, somebody in the front of the house has got to write a schedule and they got to make sure that everybody's going to show up on time to do their job. And then a waiter's going to come over and take your order. They're going to go ring it into a computer and then a ticket's going to come up in the kitchen. Somebody's going to trigger to cook that French onion soup and then they're going to give it to an expediter and then the expediter's going to give it to a runner and the runner's going to bring that dish to you and now you're sitting there having your French onion soup, but now somebody's going to have to come and take that away. Somebody's going to have to wash that plate you just ate out of, and then the waiter's going to have to come and give you a check. So when you think of a restaurant and you think of all of the mechanics of it, how it works, when I say it to some people, are like, well, why would you ever want to get in that business? It sounds like the stupidest thing in the world. There's so many places it could go wrong. And that's absolutely true. That's why you have the evolution of things like Chipotle. You know, where Steve Ells took a restaurant complexity, you know, the multiple layers yeah, you just describe, and there's way more than you really describe. And he created a synthesis of all those things and made a fast, casual restaurant that people enjoy, almost like a real restaurant, but he threw away a lot of the layers. And he created a business model that makes sense. When I was in Barbudo, I sort of took that notion about throwing away the layers because I really had never made any money in the restaurant business for 30 years. So what I decided to do is have one fork, one knife, and one spoon, one wine glass, and one water glass. No tablecloths, just napkins. I bought the cheapest plates I could possibly find at Fish's Eddie. I wanted to have 
a kitchen where there was no more than two people at lunch and four people at dinner. There was one dishwasher, one bartender. And I was kind of stupid because I opened up without a manager, without a point of sale, because I thought, I really peeled back the layers you... of the onion as far as I could. <laughs> Some of this stuff really worked well and, and it served me well. But it's so true that the complexity of a restaurant, I just finished reading Ritz and Escoffier. And, you know, 120 years ago, the way people did it was much, much more complicated than things are now. In those days, it took five people to make one dish in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. It took five people to serve that dish. Well, they were clarifying stocks, which takes forever. The saucier would make the sauce. The grill guy would grill the chicken. The entrepreneur would cook the vegetables. Uh, and, they, and they all came to, to this pass, and the chef would anoint it. And then two other people would put it on a garadon, take it out, slice the table, put it on plates. I mean, the thing is, the process was so complicated That's back then. Amazing. But it was a great show. It was the three ring circus that people really enjoyed. They loved the show. Yeah, but people went out for that because people they most of the time. The show. Then eating became more of a like a normal thing going out to yeah. eat. Yeah. So now I think restaurants are a little bit as you say, like eating in someone's house. Like you're going to someone's house yeah. to eat dinner, but you're doing it in a professional sense. That's always a feeling. I wanted you to come to my house. And I wanted you to feel that intimacy that I would cook for my family. Now you're my family. And that's the other connection I wanted to create that I felt that was kind of missing. Like most restaurants you walk into and you're just Joe Schmo, right? Right. And that's wrong. You should walk in a restaurant and it's like, welcome to my house. <laughs> You ask people about their experience at a restaurant, and people really want to remember who said hello to them and who said goodbye. I hate that. When I go to a restaurant and I leave the restaurant and I realize that I don't know who was the server, it could have been a cardboard cutout of somebody, I always tell my servers, bring your personality. I want them to remember you. There's so many reasons to come back to a restaurant. It could be the food. It could be the lighting. It could be the music. It could be the mood. It could be the waiter. It could be the location. You're one of the equations, so bring your personality to the table. You don't have control of that situation. You can't have any fear of flying. You got to assume that person at that table is going to say the right thing. It's a people business. It it really is. And you have to create sort of a truthful situation where you could take criticism. You have to be able to have someone say to you, say, you know, chef, I really don't think that's right. And you have to be able to have thick enough skin or a customer says it or an employee or your partner or whomever. You have to be able to take the criticism. Because otherwise you can't grow. And the only way you're going to do that is by getting in the restaurant business and being in it for a while. I always say to people, young cooks, I said, you should open a restaurant on somebody else's money. Like you should be a line cook and do an opening just so you can see the process. If you ever want to do it yourself one day. I know I open a lot of restaurants for other people and other people's dimes just so I could learn. I had one other thing. I just read about this or maybe I listened to it on another podcast. But the amount of time people sit at a table. Somebody found like a bunch of old videos that they were recorded of watching people eat. Like there were just security cameras in restaurants and they found old ones before phones and before social media. And they calculated that it now because of phones and social media, it takes people 10 to 15 minutes longer to eat a meal. Because when you sit down... Now the first thing people do is they're taking a picture of the place to put it on social media, or they're looking at a menu and they're looking up things. They're looking at a wine list and they're going, oh, how much does it cost at this other restaurant, this wine? So the phones have slowed down people eating, which is another thing, just to bring it back to running a restaurant, you know, turning a table. You want to turn a restaurant at least two and a half times in a night, starting seating somewhere around 6, 6.30 and seating up to 10 o'clock. Now all of a sudden, if each table is sitting there 15 minutes longer... It's going to cut into the profits. 
Yeah, I mean, back in the day when I first started and I worked in France, there was no seatings. There, there was, was just the one, right, just, right. There were just, you sat people, and that was it. That was the whole evening. No one ever thought to come in and take up somebody else's table. Right. That just didn't well, exist. It's just, it was your that, table for the night. That was your table for the night, and that was the whole thing. And, you know, that's a beautiful, finite situation if you can make it work. But nowadays, I don't think it works. So when you're home cooking by yourself, and I know you started in music, you played the trumpet, is that correct? Trombone. Trombone. Well, what do you listen to now when you cook? What kind of music? Well, if my wife will leave the room, then I play rock and roll and jazz. If my wife's around, then we play classical music. Okay. All right, I got a little quiz. What pops into your mind when I say it? Where do you go for comfort food? I'm going to say King. Great place. If you were to open a theme restaurant, what would it be? I would love to do a music-themed restaurant. I don't think there really is like a New Orleans-style oh, band-style restaurant. Great. I think it would be kind of cool. All right. In New York here, after hours, where do you eat? You know, I'm like everybody else. I eat at Blue Ribbon. What was the best meal you ever ate? I actually don't have any best meals I've ever eaten, but I would tell there's a restaurant that I would put on top, which was Freddy Girardin in Crissier in Switzerland. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. I know you have to get back to work, and we have to go check our calendar because we just named about 10 places we're going to go eat together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you. I hope you guys had as much fun listening to Waxman as I did. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpenter, my director of communications, and producers Nikki Etor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Bethann Macaluso and Kara Weissenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mangesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.